Thank you for joining us today. For more information about the church, campus locations, service times, and more, visit ecoegt.com. Also, stay in touch with us on social media by liking us on Facebook and following us on Instagram, at ecoegt. Now let's repair our hearts as we go into the message. Thank you for joining us today on this Palm Sunday. We're so excited about this coming week as we prepare our hearts for uh, celebrating Easter together, the resurrection of Christ. Hey, I trust you've taken a few moments and downloaded your, your sermon notes. So take those sermon notes out, if you would, and turn with me today to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at chapter 7 and also a few verses in chapter 8. My aim today is to demonstrate the importance of the individual to Jesus. The Pharisees and religious rulers in Jesus' day had become elitist in their pursuit of the religion, and they had forgotten about the heart of the matter. For you see, the outflow of our love for God is love one for another. This is the heart of the Christian message. And as we enter into this season of Easter, may we remember the cross, burial, and resurrection is for whosoever will. For you see, the premise of the gospel is that Jesus came to rescue the hurting and perishing the heart of the gospel is for the down and out. The heart of the gospel is people, individuals. And church, we must never lose sight of the one. We must never become so full of religion that we miss the heart of God. Others, the hurting, the down and out, the outcast of society. For you see, we serve a God who was willing to get down on his knees and write in the dust on the ground to get in the dirt in order to rescue one, in order to rescue one who was accused and judged by others. You know, earlier in John's gospel, chapter three, verse 17, it declares that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The great news of the Easter message, the great news of this Palm Sunday is that Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John. Look at verse 37 and verse 38. It says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says that Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. 
Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? John gives this commentary in verse 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then Jesus stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She replied, no, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Verse 12 makes this powerful statement. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Let's talk, first of all, for a few moments about the hostile environment that Jesus was in. If you go back to chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, you will see that the Jewish leaders were plotting the death of Christ. Verse 1 says, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. Not only were the religious leaders plotting his death, but his brothers, his own family, were antagonistic toward him. And you'll notice Jesus' response to them. It reminds us of God's appointed time and making sure that we are walking in God's timing and not our own timing. Matter of fact, his brothers prodded him. Why don't you go to Jerusalem now and show yourself because, because now is your time. But verse 6, Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go. But you can go anytime. Notice that phrase, right time. Speaking of a Kairos moment, the appointed time, the specific time. See, what we learn from Jesus is the importance of God's timing and not our timing. The temptation of his brothers were tempting him with was to do things in his own timing, to get ahead of God, to move in his own time and not the Father's time. How often are we tempted to get ahead of God? How often are we tempted to do things in our own time? It's very important that we learn to be led by the Spirit of God. For you see, timing is crucial. Timing is everything. You don't want the right thing at the wrong time. 
See, marriage is the right thing, but if you marry at the wrong time, timing is crucial. Timing is everything. You can have the right thing, but at the wrong time, and it becomes detrimental. You can move uh, when God says, stand still and miss the voice of God. Jesus is reminding us to remember our steps are ordered of the Lord. So let me challenge you. Don't just walk aimlessly through life thinking, well, what will happen will happen. No, live intentionally. And as we live life intentionally, those God moments will come. Let me share a very important note with you. Don't give in to the temptation to get ahead of God and miss your Kairos moment, your divine shift. Jesus told his brothers in verse six, but you can go anytime. See, the world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. This was a scathing indictment against his brothers. Jesus said, you can go anytime because it's always your time. In essence, he's saying, you're not living your life with a mission. You're not living your life with a God-appointed timeline because you've not surrendered to his plan and mission for your life. And church, I want to challenge you to surrender your life to God's mission and to God's purpose and to God's plan for your life. Today, as we take a glimpse into these verses, and then we move to chapter 8, what you see in chapter 7 is there's confusion, confusion among the people. Verse 12 says, there was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, well, he's a good man, but others said, he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. Now go down to verse 40. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Would the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. Notice the crowd was divided about him. Today, many people are still divided about their opinion as to who Jesus is. As we enter into this Palm Sunday, as we enter into this Holy Week, my prayer for you is this, is you will understand who Jesus is. He's the son of the living God. Secondly, let's talk a few minutes about Jesus's declarations, the statements that he makes here in chapter seven. In verse 37, it says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. 
Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. This was the festival of tabernacles. One commentary writer states this. According to Josephus, this feast was the most popular of the three principal Jewish feasts that brought the faithful flocking to Jerusalem. People living in rural areas built makeshift structures of light branches and leaves to live in for the week. And town dwellers put up similar structures on their flat roofs or in their courtyards. And the feast was known for a water drawing rite and a lamp lighting rite to which Jesus quite clearly refers. So there's two elements of this festival, two major themes associated with tabernacles, water and light. And you'll see in chapter seven, they surface in these verses. Water. On the last day of the feast, a water rite was done signifying the water God provided in the wilderness for his people. And then there was light associated with this festival. As the temple stood on a hill and the lamps that were lit during the eight nights of this festival provided a glow for all of Jerusalem. So think about this. There's people in their temporary shelters. They had lamps lit and burning. Imagine the stunning lights at night as the city was lit up during this festival. And Jesus, in the middle of this festival, says, if any man thirst, what you'll notice is Jesus brought clarity to the crowd's confusion. One theologian writes this in his commentary, important to the process of evangelization is the clear announcement of the gospel so that God's message is not misunderstood. Let me tell you something that's so important. Jesus is the only one who can bring clarity to the confusion of our world. Jesus is the only one who can bring true clarity to the confusion of our society. And may you and I declare the truth of the light of God's word. And as we do, Jesus will bring clarity to the confusion of our society. Jesus made this statement, rivers of living water will flow. In referring to living water, John explains he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, which was to be given. And the Holy Spirit, the source of life to every believer, the source of supply and the source of hope. The river, the Holy Spirit, that which will bring the very life of God to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus and bring a change in one's life. It is significant that a water rite is a part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles because Jesus brings a change in one's life. And we'll see that as we look at the woman caught in adultery. Holman's commentary makes this statement. The surrounding context offered a dramatic backdrop for these brief but powerful words. 
The corporate mind had been focused on water for days. And on the seventh day of this feast, the priests would circle the altar seven times in succession as the people of Israel had encircled the walls of Jericho. And when he came around the sixth time, he'd be joined by another priest carrying the wine. They would ascend the ramp to the altar where they were together to pour out the water and the wine on the altar. And when they were in place, they would come to a pause as the priest would raise his pitcher and the crowd would begin to shout louder and louder. They would say, higher, higher. And he would lift that pitcher higher. And as he did, he began to pour that water out and that wine out. And that water and wine would begin to flow down the altar and flow into the, the courtyard. And it's at that moment that Jesus stood stood up and declared, I am living water. Glad tidings today, Jesus Christ offers living water. The Spirit of God still flows. And my prayer today is that the Holy Spirit will flow in your home, at the altars of your house, that the power of the Holy Spirit would fill your home, your children, and our communities. That people would see and experience this river of life, the Spirit of God that brings life to everything that he touches. Verse 12 of chapter 8 was the other powerful statement Jesus made. Now notice the story of the woman caught in adultery is sandwiched in between these two powerful statements where Jesus said, I am living water, and I'll give you living water. And he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. John places these words right after the freedom that Jesus brought to the woman caught in adultery. See, the light exposed the hypocrisy of the religious rulers, and the same light brought freedom to the one who was bound. Oh, allow the light of Christ to bring light to our own hypocrisy in our own life, but also allow the light to bring freedom to those areas where we are bound. Finally, let's spend the next few moments talking about the intervention. In chapter seven, we looked at where Jesus said, I'll give you living water. I am living water. I am. And then we open chapter eight with this powerful story of the brokenness of humanity and the emptiness of religion to change a person. In this passage, we are reminded that the church needs the presence of God to change a broken world. Religion judges, but Jesus liberates and sets free. Here is a woman caught in adultery. 
She was brought by the religious leaders and the Pharisees. I often have wondered where was the man. One theologian writes, the Pharisees posed a dilemma. If Jesus agreed to stone the woman, he would incur the distrust of the sinners. He came to save as well as break Roman law. But a refusal to stone her would make him vulnerable to the accusation that he treated the law of Moses lightly. It is a sad commentary on the culture of first century Israel that brought in the woman, but no mention is made of the man. If Jesus said stone her, then the religious leaders would run to the Romans and say, he's breaking the law of the Romans and he's inciting a riot. And if he doesn't say stone her, then he's breaking the law of Moses. It's a sad commentary on the culture of first century Israel that they brought this woman, but no mention is made of the man. See, the religious say, he is one of us. Let's protect him while stoning someone else, while stoning her. See, religion places people in categories and disenfranchises the weak. Religion gives rights to one group and takes away the rights of another group. Religion suppresses one people while propping up another. These religious rulers were something else. It's like they were saying, we understand why the man was doing this. We can identify with him. He's one of us, of our kind. However, someone has to be punished. So let's punish this one. Verse 3 tells us they put her in front of the crowd. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been called in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. A woman who had been caught. You know, that Greek word caught means to seize upon. It means to lay hold. It means to catch up with. It means to overtake. It has everything to do with the sting operation, a, a trap set for the purpose of catching someone. It's interesting these men knew where to go, isn't it? There's a couple of details that are worth mentioning. Verse 1 tells us Jesus had been in the Mount of Olives the night before. See, the Mount of Olives was a place of connection for Jesus. It was a place where he spent time with the Father. In church, a spiritual war was brewing. Attacks were on the horizon as Jesus marched toward his destiny, the cross. Let me tell you something very important. That which will prepare, prepare you for the attack and traps of the enemy is spending time with the Father. The enemy will always try to entrap you. The enemy will always try to trip you up. But what is going to help you guard against that is spending time with the Father. We must have regular times of connecting with God the Father. When you spend time in communion in the presence of the great I am, he will prepare you for the challenges of the day. And Jesus was prepared for the attack. 
Jesus was prepared for the trap of the religious leaders because he had previously spent time with the Father. Now he is in the temple area during the Feast of the Tabernacles teaching the Word of God. The King James says, in the midst, implying in the midst of Jesus. See, you have the intent of the Pharisees to trap Jesus with these charges with a complete disregard for the woman in question. The real issue was the political motives of the accusers. One theologian suggests that the entire thing was a setup, which we would call today an entrapment. In the rabbinical law, two or three witnesses have to observe the act of adultery in order for the death penalty to be enforced. And the theologian writes this, under such circumstances, it's almost self-evident that the rulers must have arranged the situation to entrap, having stationed their witnesses in the room. It was a situation quite similar to those that use private investigators and photographers today to prove that somebody has done something wrong. Let me tell you something important. They thought she was the one who was caught, but in reality, it was them caught by their own sin. They thought they had her, but in reality, Jesus had her. And church, let me pause here just for a moment. Aren't you glad that Jesus has you? In the midst of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus, the bondage of sin has to flee. Hell is in trouble when sinners come to the presence of Jesus. And the Pharisees said, we have her now. But Jesus said, no, I got her now. See, the enemy may be screaming in your ear, I have you. I'm going to destroy you. Don't listen to the lie of the enemy. Submit yourself to Jesus and realize Jesus has you. I want you to realize that you're more than just a number. For you see, to the religious leaders, this woman was just a pawn in a chess game. She was insignificant to them because they were using her to gain an advantage over the Christ. She was just a number in the crowd to them. She was a way to a means, a vehicle to their destination, only to be dis discarded after they achieved their goal. But church, I want you to hear this. You are never just another face in the crowd to Jesus. You are never just a number among so many others. When Jesus looks at you, he does not see a means to an end. When Jesus looks at you, he sees potential. When Jesus looks at you, he sees destiny. When Jesus looks at you, he sees purpose. He sees a person, a human being whom he loves and desires to change and give his eternal life to. Now notice the next few events. Verse 6 says they were trying to trap him into saying something 
they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. He stooped down. We serve the Christ who was willing to stoop down. He was willing to bow low to the ground. What a contrast to the haughtiness of the religious elites. And he begins to write in the ground. It has been speculated for centuries what, what was it that Jesus wrote in the ground? Was it something about mercy and compassion? Was it the sins of the ones who were accusing this woman? Any statement on our part would only be conjecture because the passage is silent concerning this. So, so we must be silent. Nonetheless, he stooped down and was willing to get in the dust or dirt and began to write. Aren't you glad our Savior was willing to get dirty, to get in the dust, to get into the dust of the ground for this woman? Aren't you glad our Jesus was willing to get dirty and go to the cross of Calvary that you and I might have eternal life? Our passage tells us they demanded an answer. John gives us excellent details of the story so as to betray his accuracy to us without missing a point. And these self-righteous men demand an answer, thinking they had the Son of God. They entrapped him. But notice the perfect reply. Verse 7, they kept demanding. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust. Notice what happened next. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, no, my Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I go and sin no more. They all left one by one. The verdict was, where are thine accusers? Jesus is left alone in the middle of the crowd with this woman. And he addresses her. Did not even one of them condemn you? This question elicited a response from this woman. The moment of truth and the moment of change. No, Lord. Jesus looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, Jesus speaks with authority and compassion. It is like he takes the key and unlocks the prison that has bound this lady for, no doubt, years. 
And he opens the door and says, you are free. Go and return to this prison no more. I submit to you today that Jesus has the key to unlock your prison door. And he speaks today with authority and declares, I will open that door. You can walk out of that prison and you can be free today. Church, I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that he offers freedom. I'm so thankful that he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. I'm so thankful that he's made a way that we can come into his presence. I'm so thankful today for eternal life. Jesus offers this same opportunity to each of us. He is the one who can set us free from any prison from any sin, from any bondage, from any chains. And it was after this encounter with this woman who was called in adultery, where the Pharisees thought they had caught her, when actuality Jesus had caught them. Jesus released her. They walked away and their own guilt and condemnation. Jesus wants to offer you freedom. And it's in that context that Jesus then turned to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Jesus offers each of us that light that leads to life. Will you commit your heart to Christ? Will you ask the Lord Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior? Will you receive his free gift of eternal life? All you have to do is accept him today. For as many as call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All you have to do is believe in your heart that he is the son of God. And confess with your mouth that he is Lord. See, the Word of God tells us that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus is offering you a way out of your prison. Maybe you feel entrapped. Maybe you feel like you've been caught. <laughs> Hear the words of Jesus. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Will you pray this prayer with me today? Dear Jesus, come into my heart. I accept you as my Lord. 
I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're the Son of God. And I confess my sins to you. Confess my sins. Be merciful to me, O Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me and giving me another opportunity, a fresh start in Jesus' name. Amen. We believe if you prayed that prayer, that simple prayer, we believe you became born again. You've just received the gift of eternal life. Welcome to the family of God. Let's sing this song and let's rejoice.